Well, I saw it happen again last Sunday morning on my way to church. Some poor lost soul was traveling northbound on the scenic highway through downtown Snellville when he took a right-hand turn onto Highway 78. The motorist obviously didn't understand the configuration of the intersection. And uh-oh, he suddenly found himself driving straight into oncoming traffic. And you know what he did? He stopped. He did just what you've done when you were in the same situation. He stopped and he tried to turn around in the left-hand turn lane. Big mistake. After several awkward maneuvers, which included driving over the concrete curbing, and some patience from his oncoming drivers, who probably had made the same mistake themselves sometime in the past, after it all had happened, the fellow survived. All I did was just slow down and thought to myself, welcome to Snellville and the world's most confusing intersection." Officially, the Georgia Department of Transportation calls it a displaced left-turn crossover intersection. To the DOT, it's the DLT. But to motorists, it's a mess. If you haven't had the experience, it's time to treat your wild side and take a drive this afternoon through the city of Snellville. To turn left at the intersection, there's a light before you get to the light at the intersection that lets you cross over into a displaced left turn lane to make the left-hand turn you wanted to make in the first place. Hope you got all that. Just make sure your collision insurance is paid up before you give it a try. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, 23% of fatal car crashes occur at intersections. The total annual cost to American society of intersection-related crashes is $40 billion. So the DLT crossover is supposed to reduce accidents, lower construction costs, use less land, increase traffic flow, and minimize engine idling, improving fuel efficiency, the all-important thing these days. But as the old saying goes, I don't care how much lipstick you put on the pig. It's still seriously confusing for unsuspecting motorists. In fact, the DOT website admits there will be an adjustment period for drivers that can take a while. How about going on four years now? There can be confusion, frustration, and some accidents resulting from the new design. Given that going against the flow can be counterintuitive, it is imperative that the signage be clear and concise to help drivers adjust. Well, just as confusing and counterintuitive as the intersection in Snellville is our subject today. This morning, we want to talk about the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. And there have been some crashes here. Some crashes of faith. The virgin birth of Jesus is an intersection of the divine and the human, of God's wisdom and human logic, of revelation and reason. When some folks encounter this topic, their faith and intellect collide. It can prove costly to their salvation. 
And this is why we need to see the miracle of the virgin birth as it was originally intended. God's promise here in verse 14 of of Isaiah chapter 7 had to be bold and grand. For it was a sign to Judah's frightened and war-wearied King Ahaz. Originally, the promise of Emmanuel, this promise that later the angel of the Lord made to Joseph to explain the events of that first Christmas, was to the kings of Judah, of which Ahaz was a representative. At the time, 735 to 716 B.C., the nation Judah was under attack by several invading armies from both the Syrians and the Israelites to the north. And King Ahaz was petrified. The king was horrified. It was the prophet Isaiah who came to reassure Ahaz that God was in control, that God would deliver his people. And to confirm it, King Ahaz could ask for a sign. In Isaiah 7 verse 10 we read, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. God is saying, ask something supernatural of me. Anything that you can think of that would confirm my promise. Nothing is off the table to you, King Ahaz. What an amazing command. God is assuring Ahaz of his deliverance with a sign of the king's own choosing. He can ask for the most outlandish sign imaginable and God will do it. If this offer was made to you, what supernatural sign would you choose? Cause the moon to brush up against the earth? Roll back the hands on the clock? Cause that long Christmas line at Walmart to instantly disappear? Or would you, go, would you really go crazy? I mean, really wild. Would you say, God, just let Georgia Tech beat Georgia in football just once? Something really crazy. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now we learn from Ahaz's future actions that this was just false humility. He had already decided to strike an alliance with the Assyrians. This king had more faith in his political maneuvers than in the power of his God. But this offer of a sign pricked his conscience. God was wanting to prove to himself and his faithfulness to King Ahaz. Sadly, he was already leaning far from God. So since Ahaz refuses to name a son, God does it for him. Verse 13, then he, that is Isaiah, said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Notice Isaiah takes the matter of a sign beyond the current local situation. The immediate politics had provoked the prophecy. But it's as if God knew that it would be wasted on Ahaz. So he broadens its implications to the whole house of David. The sign that Isaiah reveals will speak not only to King Ahaz, but it will be a sign to the kings of the Davidic dynasty and to all the generations of the tribes of Judah. And what God chooses as a sign 
is far more bizarre than anything Ahaz or you and me could have dreamed up. Isaiah writes in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. What a sign indeed. If God can cause a virgin named Mary to conceive a son, then there's no question he can get King Ahaz or whoever might be king at the time in the chosen nation of Judah out of hot water with their enemies. Realize Christmas started as a sign. It was a sign to a man weak in faith that he served a mighty God for whom nothing is impossible. And if it were a sign for Ahaz, why isn't it a sign for all of the Lord's followers? If God can impregnate the womb of a virgin by his spirit, then there's nothing he can't do by that same spirit. The virgin birth was a feat so outlandish, so beyond the pale of our understanding. It set a precedent. If God could work this miracle, he can do anything. Today, even with the tremendous advances we've made in the field of reproductive science, fertility medications, in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, cloning, etc., etc., still nothing even remotely helps us to explain the mechanics of the virgin birth. The advances in obstetrics are marvelous, but they're explicable. Yet the virgin birth is not just marvelous, it is miraculous. In fact, it caused the great reformer Martin Luther to write in a rather tongue-in-cheek manner. He said, the incarnation consists of three miracles. The first, that God became man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that the heart of man should believe this. When we see a wide receiver dive and catch a football most players can't reach, we call it a miracle. But it's not. When we undergo a procedure, a medical procedure, that 50 years ago was unimaginable, we call it a miracle. But technically, it's not. A new gizmo gets labeled a miracle. But in the truest sense, it's not. See, a real miracle is a phenomenon that's impossible to explain or reduce into scientific terms. It goes beyond the scope of science. It can't be replicated in a Petri dish or studied under a microscope. A genuine miracle is an event that depends on God's direct intervention. The truly miraculous isn't just a technological improvement or a scientific breakthrough. A real miracle usurps the natural laws to accomplish a divine purpose. Miracles baffle the intellect. They drive us to our knees and force us to face our human limitations. Miracles become an internal intersection. They bring us to the brink of our understanding and to the beginnings of faith. The inquisitive, the technical, the mechanical, the analytical mind must give up in the face of a genuine miracle. One will never figure out what only faith can grasp. It was Tertullian, the second century Latin apologist, who once commented, I believe because it is absurd. It was the fact that he couldn't figure it all out. The power of God, the person of Jesus, 
the truths and claims of Christianity. That's what drew Tertullian to the Christian faith. And I agree. If God's ways can be deciphered by my little pea brain, he can't be much of a God. God's ways should be beyond my ways. If God doesn't at times frustrate our thinking, then he's not a God worth serving. Philosopher Dr. Mortimer Adler became a Christian at the age of 82. He made the following comment. He said, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements to it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we can figure it out ourselves? If it were wholly comprehensible, it would be just another philosophy. A miracle reminds me who God is and who I am. Up against a miracle, my wisdom appears so naive. My intellectual prowess seems so shallow. My mental power so weak, while God appears more godlike. And Christmas is a time to ponder a miracle. It's a season for humbling our hearts and our heads and marveling at a miracle. A virgin conceived. As John wrote in his gospel, the word became flesh. Or as the Greeks called it, the logos. The ultimate reason behind life was revealed in skin and blood and bone. As the scientists today call it, the unified theory. The theory of everything was revealed in a man named Jesus. God added humanity to his deity. God became a man. Think of it. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The creator became a kid. And how did it happen? Well, the details are sketchy. But here's what we know. The Spirit of God overshadowed a virgin's womb. The seed of the spiritual impregnated a human egg. The divine seed planted into human soil. The human and divine mingled and blended and became one. It was a miracle of the highest order. And that is as far as I allow myself to go. To me, it's inappropriate to probe any further. Here we stand on holy ground. You recall from the blazing bush on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. Well, the virgin birth is another reason to slip off your sandals before a miracle. It's not for us to scrutinize this kind of divine mystery. We need to stand humbly here in awe of God's omnipotence and wisdom. Christmas is not a time to be analytical or technical. Christmas is a time to gawk at God. Unlike King Ahaz, the angel of the Lord knew that Joseph was a man of faith. Jesus' foster father didn't need an explanation to believe. All he needed to navigate the intersection of mystery and mandate of puzzle and obedience was a sign. He just needed a sign, a reminder of God's promise. So after the angel's visit to Joseph, the gospel writer Matthew puts it all in context. He tells us, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and again he quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The idea of God's son coming into the world through the womb of a virgin is like an unconventional intersection you're experiencing for the first time. It's counterintuitive. It's not in keeping with the norm. It's unprecedented, and thus it can be difficult to navigate. And that's why collisions and crashes can occur. Unless you trust the engineer and you follow the signs. You trust the engineer and you follow the signs. The virgin birth can confuse your faith if you see only its complexities. But if you see it as a sign, if you hear God again say, since I can do this, I can work the miracle you need, then it builds up your faith in amazing ways. This is why the devil works overtime to undermine this miracle. He throws shade on the virgin birth of Jesus. For example, in Isaiah 7 verse 14, the Hebrew term translated virgin is the word Alma. And there are skeptics who will tell you that Alma doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It can mean a young girl of marriageable age, which is true. But it does often mean virgin. In fact, Alma appears seven times in the Old Testament. And in four of the seven passages, the context is without a doubt speaking of a girl who has never had sexual relations with a man. The three other uses of the word are less clear but they also probably refer to virgin girls. Besides, this birth is intended to be a sign to Ahaz. And what kind of a sign is it for a young girl of marriageable age to birth a child? That was an everyday occurrence. A sign is an extraordinary event. It attracts attention. It indicates that God is up to something unique and special. Well, all doubt about the meaning of this word Alma was eliminated in 270 B.C. when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, a translation that we now call the Septuagint. The Septuagint renders the Hebrew word Alma with the Greek word Parthenos, which is a strong term. It's an unequivocal reference to a virgin, a genuine virgin. And here is the icing on the cake. When the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14 and it gets recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word used is this term parthenos. Obviously, when both Isaiah and Matthew wrote a virgin, a woman who had never had sexual relations with a man is exactly what the authors meant. Well, Isaiah continues to write here of Emmanuel in verse 15, he says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, curds and honey were Jewish baby food. Thus, Isaiah is saying that before this miraculous virgin-born child reaches adulthood, Judah's neighbors, Syria and Israel, will no longer be a serious threat, a military threat to Judah. Now, it would be 730 years before the child of this prophecy would be born. 
Yet if Jesus had been born at that very day, the time frame would have still been valid. A Jewish boy celebrates his bar mitzvah or his passage from childhood to adulthood around the age of 12. At the time of this prophecy was given to Ahaz, it took a little less than a dozen years for the Assyrians to wipe out both Syria and Israel. Both enemies had been toppled. Of course, some folks ask, how can an event 730 years in the future be assigned to a man in the present? Well, Isaiah's point is to introduce to Ahaz and to the nation this person, Emmanuel. He would be born of a virgin seven centuries in the future. But Emmanuel was active at that very moment. God's son was Emmanuel from the dawn of time, not just at his birth. In the Old Testament, Emmanuel appeared at various times and for various reasons. We call it a Christophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Here he comes to defend Ahaz. In Isaiah 8, we learn that it was Emmanuel who drew the sword to fend off the invading armies of Assyria. The Emmanuel, who would later be born in Bethlehem, had already been active in the life of the nation 700 years earlier. The ultimate intersection of divine and human and the sign that taught us who Emmanuel really was and what he had really come to do wouldn't be revealed until the virgin had conceived and bore a son. There are other Old Testament passages that affirm God's promise of the Savior's virgin birth. This miracle is spoken of in several places. Genesis 3 anticipates the ultimate conflict between the Savior and the Satan. God speaks to the serpent who deceived Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hostility will exist between Eve's offspring and the agents of Satan. Satan will bruise Eve's son, but Eve's boy will crush the devil. This happened on the cross. Yes, Jesus got a nasty heel bruise, but Satan got his skull crushed in. And notice the wording of this prophecy. Jesus is referred to as the seed of the woman. This is the only time in Scripture which speaks of a woman possessing a seed. The man supplies the seed, not the woman. Obviously, Genesis 3 verse 15 is predicting a kind of miracle birth, a unique and special and supernatural birth. Consider as well Jeremiah 31, verse 22. It says, For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. The Hebrew rabbis, writing long before the coming of Jesus, they understood this verse to refer to the birth of a son by supernatural means. One rabbi explained it. Messiah is to have no earthly father. Another rabbi stated, the birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of the Messiah will be like that of no other man. In a third rabbinical interpretation, the birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as drops on the grass without the action of a man. All three interpretations strike a similar chord. Jewish scholars before Jesus understood that the prophet Jeremiah predicted Messiah would be born of a virgin. Realize, too, the virgin birth is not only predicted in the Old Testament, 
It's crucial, essential teaching in the New Testament as well. If Jesus of Nazareth had been the bastard child of Mary's infidelity, or even the legitimate offspring of her marriage to Joseph, we would have no salvation. Jesus would be a mere mortal, a common sinner, guilty of sin himself, and unable to die in our place for our sins. You see, sin is inherent. It's passed down. Every person is born with a rebellious, stubborn nature. If you don't believe it, just walk 50 feet back that direction to the nursery back there. We're selfish from the womb. As the saying goes, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Romans chapter 5 teaches us that the first Adam acted for all humanity so that the last Adam, Jesus, could save all who trust in him. One man acts for all men. And thus the Bible makes a big deal that sin passes from Adam, not Eve. It's the father's bloodline that's stained. The reason we're born into sin and wicked from the wound is because of our distant daddy, Adams. I mean, Adam. <laughs> and this is why the virgin birth is a necessity. Since Joseph was not his blood relative, Jesus avoided the inherent sin from Adam. Jesus received his humanity from Mary, but his spiritual nature came from God. Jesus might have inherited Mary's Jewish nose or maybe her black wavy hair, but he was born with a divine nature. In Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus was born sinless. If Jesus had been born in sin, even if he'd lived a perfect life afterwards, he would still would have died for his own sin, not ours. To die a substitutionary death, Jesus had to be guiltless not only from birth, but in birth. The miracle that occurred in the womb of that young maiden enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother, his mother Mary, yet as sinless and divine as God in heaven. And this is why the virgin birth is foundational to all Christian theology. It's essential, not optional. In fact, kick out the cornerstone and the whole house caves in. Without the sign that God gave to Ahaz, Christianity becomes a house of cards. Lose the truth of the virgin birth. And Jesus is no longer the God-man. He's now a con-man. Our salvation becomes a sham. Forget peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Never mind Christmas is for kids. Ignore the Christmas cheer and charity. There is no reason for the season if Jesus of Nazareth is not born of a virgin. Without the virgin birth, Jesus isn't who he says he is, and he's unable to do what he says he does. Which brings us again to this counterintuitive intersection of faith and reason. Here's where collisions occur. At the virgin birth, our high-mindedness runs head-on into humble hearts. At the virgin birth, a know-it-all attitude crashes into a childlike faith. A desire to believe gets tangled in an inability to see what God is doing in my life. And that's why to avoid trouble, to keep from taking a wrong turn at this point, 
We have to approach the virgin birth as a sign, as the sign it was intended to be. Remember, God had let us in on a miracle, not just to enlighten our intellect or to satisfy some curiosity or even to color in our imagination, but God allowed us this truth to strengthen our faith. Remember the point of it all. If God can birth a child through a virgin, then he can work the miracle that you need. The virgin birth is a lesson on following God even when we don't understand all that he does, even when we can't figure him out. It reduces Christian faith to its simplest equation. If God can do that, then God can do this. Take note here, the why isn't important. Only the what. You know, when I'm in the thick of the confusion at Scenic Highway in 78, I'm not pondering why. I'll think about why later. Why did this engineer think this would be a good idea? Why did he come up with this conclusion? Those are questions for later. But in that moment, I'm focused on the what to do. What are the signs telling me? And this is the point of the virgin birth. It's a sign telling us that we can trust God even when we can't track his ways. Let me read to you this morning some challenging thoughts from that profound theologian, Dr. Seuss. I've shared this with you before, but it really bears repeating. I'd like to read an excerpt from his book, On Beyond Zebra. Said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell to his very young friend who was learning to spell, the A is for ape, the B is for bear, the C is for camel, the H is for hare. The M is for mouse, the R is for rat. I know all the 26 letters like that. Through Z is for zebra, I know them all well, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell. So now I know anything anyone knows from beginning to end, from the start to the close, because Z is as far as the alphabet goes. Then he almost fell flat on his face on the floor when I picked up the chalk and drew one letter more. A letter he had never dreamed of before. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. In the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends. My alphabet starts with this letter called Yeez. It's the letter I use to spell Yeezimatees. You'll be surprised what there is to be found once you go beyond Z and start poking around. So on beyond zebra, it's high time you were shown that you really don't know all there is to be known. I love that message of Dr. Seuss, what he's conveying to us. For too many of us live like we know it all. We stop at Z. We refuse to trust God when he does the unfamiliar or the counterintuitive in our lives. When God's plan doesn't fit snugly into our frame of reference, or God chooses to work in ways we can't see or explain, we refuse to accept them so often. We're afraid to go beyond zebra. Realize if this is you, you will never get anywhere with God until you choose real faith. 
Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. To know God personally, you have to trust him beyond where you're able to trace him. This is why Christmas is so therapeutic for us. It forces us beyond our limitations and possibilities, and it preps us for God's miracles. To be brought to my knees in simple faith and absolute trust is good, good medicine for my soul. To be baffled once a year at Christmas is a blessing. Christmas is one huge lesson in humility. It encourages me to rest my probing mind in God's loving arms. I cling to the motto, I love God because I know him, but I adore God because I cannot comprehend him. It's like the old saying, what's over my head is still under God's feet. Jesus' virgin birth teaches us that God is bigger than all of my questions and all of my problems. Think for a moment about a pizza. I'm prepping you for lunch. Getting you hungry. Think about a mellow mushrooms pizza. Oh, my. Have you ever wondered why pizza is round? Could be any shape, but no, pizzas are round. And yet, why does that round pizza come in a square box? You'd think a round pizza would require a round box, wouldn't you? Common sense. And then when I open that square box, why do I find pieces of that pizza cut in triangles? I got a round pizza in a square box cut in triangles. Is that just me, or is that confusing? And yet, none of the mystery stops me from eating that pizza when I get hungry. And this is how David expresses his faith in Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. I don't have to scrutinize the recipe I read the label on the ingredients on the side of the package before I eat the food. Not knowing the contents of a dish has never stopped me from diving in and enjoying a delicious meal. I can taste before I know. Do I have questions that one day I'll ask God? Of course I do. Who doesn't? But a few unanswered questions doesn't stop me from tasting his goodness now. And this is how I approach many of the elements of my relationship with God and the Christian faith, as well as the virgin birth. Do I wait for God to explain every nuance of a scripture before I believe it? No. I trust in his word with all my heart. Do I expect God to give me all the details before I embrace his will? No. I'm sure he loves me. His ways are best. I've chosen to follow him. Do I question God's love for me just because life doesn't turn out the way I think it should? Of course not. Jesus died on a rugged cross for me. How dare I doubt his love for me now? Or does God owe me an explanation or need my permission before he brings a trial my way? Certainly not. God is the father and I am the child. See, my understanding is always lagging behind God's movements in my life. This is why we walk by faith. Pastor Gardner Taylor was Martin Luther King Jr.'s role model for his preaching. 
Dr. Taylor was an amazing communicator of the gospel. The grandson of emancipated slaves, he grew up in a segregated south. Once Gardner was preaching in an old country church in the Louisiana bayou, a sole single electric light bulb illuminated the sanctuary. In the middle of his sermon, that light bulb died and the room went pitch black. Dr. Taylor, a young preacher at the time, he didn't know what to do. He sort of stumbled around for a few seconds. And that's when one of the deacons sitting on the back pew shouted, Preach on, preacher! We can still see Jesus in the dark. And this is the nature of true faith. Genuine faith is the equivalent of night vision goggles. It sees Jesus even in the dark. Despite the circumstances, despite what's going on in your life, real faith holds fast. This Christmas, I hope you'll go beyond Z and let God be as big and bold and incomprehensible as he truly is. I trust you'll look for Jesus, not only in the decorative lights of Christmas, but also in the dark places, because he's there too. This Christmas, may you taste of God's goodness as you stand in awe of him at the intersection of his wonders and mysteries. Christmas is the holiday that humbles us. The virgin birth is the intersection of God's infinite wisdom and our fidelity and trust. In the confusion of our lives, in the unconventional routings of faith and reason, let God be God. Surrender to his ways and his wisdom. And love him for the great God that he truly is. And then, taste and see, for the Lord is good.